Welcome to Raise the Line with Osmosis.org, seeking solutions with leading experts on how to increase healthcare capacity so people can get the care they need during the COVID-19 crisis and beyond. Hi, I'm Dr. Rish Desai, and today on Raise the Line, I'm happy to be joined by Dr. Adam B. Hill. Dr. Hill is a pediatric oncologist and palliative care specialist at Riley Hospital for Children and an associate professor at Indiana University School of Medicine as well. He has a special interest in the issue of physician wellness, and part of our conversation today is actually going to be about a free webinar in September sponsored by Covaris and MedIQ. A link to that is going to be available in the description of the show. It's really about physicians and addiction, and in fact, Dr. Hill wrote a book about his own struggle with addiction called A Long Walk Out of the Woods. Thank you so much for being with us here today, Dr. Hill. It's a pleasure to have you on the show. Pleasure to join you. Thank you. So I guess one thing I just wanted to dive right into is just understanding your own interest in medicine and and kind of maybe walk us through what got you interested in medicine, what has changed over the years for you in terms of how you view the field of medicine. Sure. You know, it really started early in life and following in the footsteps of my father, who's a child and adolescent social worker, counselor, and um, just saw him being of service to other people and helping other people in need. I was raised in a small town, a family of a lot of educators and people that really highly valued giving back to community and relationship building. And so I was just saw inspired by him to work in a field of service and one, hopefully I could make an impact and a difference. And probably in high school, became more and more interested in, in medicine as that career path. And I always said, if I didn't get into medical school, I would have ended up being a teacher and just found a lot of passion and individual meaning behind just trying to give back to people. And eventually it led me to this career path and a path that is, uh, you know, changed and altered the course from originally being in pediatrics and then oncology and now palliative care, but still that same mission of trying to make a difference in people's lives when I can. So Adam, for those that haven't read your book, do you mind just walking us through what led you to writing the book, what the book is about, and and kind of your journey through addiction? Sure. Writing the book for me, you know, I was in the midst of my career starting fellowship, but even through medical school and residency, I really struggled with this, with the emotional complexity of working in this field of trauma and sadness and guilt and feeling like an imposter or even just feeling overworked or abused at times and never really feeling like I fit in. And at one point in my career, I was just really struggling emotionally. I'd reached a point where a pretty significant depression that uh, was untreated. And, and I reached for the bottle as my coping mechanism. And for me, it worked for a short amount of time to quell this anxiety and guilt and depression and just feeling like I was trapped but that quickly spiraled out of control where I was drinking every night and my depression worsened and reached this point where I was actively suicidal with a plan to end my own life in the woods, which is the imagery of the front of the book and the callback to the story of, you know, the rest of my life in recovery has been this long walk out of the woods of finding recovery, finding uh, my own mental health, and being proactive in a way that I could continue to do this career and to live my life, to raise a family, to be the best husband, son, father that I can be. And, um, and that's what the book's about. It, it really tells the arc of my whole journey from even early in childhood to my career in medicine, but now as a 
father of three and just trying to be the best person I can be day after day. It's obviously a very vulnerable position to be in, both as a caregiver, but also trying to receive care. I'm, I'm curious, did you feel, at least early on before you told your story so publicly, did you feel like it was hard to talk about? Was there stigma? Absolutely. And, you know, really, I was many years into recovery before I started speaking about it openly. Uh, there were only handfuls of people that knew my story. But yet I, I'd reached this moment in my life where I'd lost a colleague to suicide. And actually, at the time, it had been the fifth colleague I had lost to suicide in my young career, where I had found recovery and found a good place in my own story, but I was still holding it closeted and really deeply ashamed of what I had been through and what I had survived. And uh, I was ashamed to talk about it and not just on a personal individual level, but the institutional stigmatization I was exposed to with medical licensing and hospital credentialing and malpractice that um, questions that really made me feel like I should be ashamed. And at times I was punished for having this history in my medical career. So, but it was really after that friend died of, of suicide that I said, you know, I'm not being authentic to myself. I'm not really reaching out and helping people that I wanted to reach in the midst of their own grief and sorrow and not understanding the tragedy of this loss. And so it just really emboldened me and empowered me to speak out, to share my story so that hopefully it would reach somebody that was struggling before it was too late. Adam, do you feel right now in 2020, medical institutions really have a medical model for wellness and addiction? I wish I could say that we do. Uh, you know, I still, I think that there has been a lot of movement in, in the last few years and this groundswell of support of more and more people talking openly about their own mental health, talking about their own addiction histories, um, but it's still not enough. We still have a lot of institutional stigmatization and punishment that exists that that really shies people away from seeking treatment. And I think we have so much more work to do. And, and for me, you know, I think that there's two sides of this argument of wellness of how do we build additional infrastructure on top of what we're doing? You know, things such as actually having counseling and access resources, actually screening people in a way that's productive or building programs for wellness. But if we don't address the underlying discrimination that exists, then very few people will actually access those resources in a way that they're open and vulnerable about what they're struggling. And so I really think we have to do both, acknowledge that the system has been crumbling for decades and really rebuild it from the ground up. Do you mind sharing with me a story or maybe an anecdote during your journey where you felt like you were actually getting the, the short end of the stick or, or maybe received some stigma for having dealt with it with issues of addiction and, and what that actually looked like? I write about it in the book and it's public knowledge now that you know when I moved states and applied for a new medical license as somebody who was proactive into treatment, I sought my own treatment, didn't have any medical uh, hospital credentialing issues, didn't have any legal issues, um, had gone into treatment, was successful in recovery for about a year and a half. And yet when I moved, my license was put on probation and I was really publicly shamed and asked to write a, an article for a newsletter apologizing for my addiction that would be published publicly. 
and that's the fate, you know, that was not that long ago, a handful of years ago, but that that's the archaic face of public shaming. We still attach to what we consider a medical condition and a medical diagnosis. And if we're going to treat each other like that in the medical community, then what hope do we have for our patients that we serve every single day? And so I think we have to get that right. We, we have to stop demonizing and criminalizing and just punishing and stigmatizing addiction in a way that is not true to how we view it as a medical diagnosis. So you're hosting this webinar, which is phenomenal. What can people expect if they're going to be attending the free webinar? You know, I really want to share my story and my experience and, you know, of one of challenging people of where the obstacles and barriers still are in the way for people that are in mental health recovery or seeking mental health or addiction recovery in, in medicine. Um, so to help highlight some of those barriers and obstacles, but also just share a lot of hope and a lot of hope that recovery is possible. I mean, I'm blessed beyond measure in my current job and with my wife and really hopefully give some tangible ways that people can, you know, be proactive about their own mental health, but also to challenge the status quo so that it'll open doors for other people. So there are a lot of phrases, catchphrases, things like you've got to hit rock bottom. And, and you know, some models don't believe in the value of medically assisted treatment for people with substance use disorders. What would you say to folks like that? I mean, individually, I, I'd say that every person's story is different. And, you know, what I preach and what I try to do on a daily basis, whether it's my patients and families that I treat in palliative care or in, previously in oncology is to really listen and learn what somebody's individual story is. There's not one size fits all. And, you know, I was in AA recovery and that was a huge part of my early recovery and abstinence only program. And I have a lot of friends that have been very successful in that. Yet at the same time, I know people who've been recovery in SMART programs or have been in harm reduction models. And for me, you know, I'm not in a position, I'm not an addictionologist, I'm not a psychologist, I'm not a psychiatrist, I'm a man who has lived his own story of recovery, and so I see value that can be added in a lot of different ways. But I also, what I hope is that we carve out spaces for compassion and empathy and understanding instead of judgment or stereotyping people on the surface, and we really delve deep and say, like, you know, acknowledge our humanity in all of this and not just what's a checkbox or a symptom or pops up on the computer medical record screen when we see somebody has a, a history of, of these things, but to really dive deep. And, and that's what I hope. On that front, how do you think medical schools and nursing schools should be training future nurses and doctors to develop and cultivate that compassion? Yeah, I think it's... Um, you know, I'm a big fan of, of really teaching the humanities in medical school and, and really, you know, asking people to be taught more about empathic, compassionate ways to communicate, but also to grieve and to process trauma and to acknowledge that it's okay to feel that trauma. You know, I, I write about in the book of, you know, on Christmas night, of my intern year doing chest compressions on a baby in the emergency room and that baby dying and then having to tell that family and then just run back up to the intensive care unit to another patient who was dying. And it was, you know, it was a surreal moment, but just to keep doing and to keep answering pages and to keep like stuffing down the complex emotions of that trauma and not processing it for years later. And so I think we really just need to have spaces where we acknowledge this this is really abnormal work that we do. 
and it's really can be difficult and traumatic and and to acknowledge that up front that we're not robots we're not superhumans or superheroes we're people doing our best and really just try to cultivate that you know i often joke with our medical students early that i have the privilege of teaching is like you know this is the most human and most humanity that you're going to have and hold on to it for dear life like you know don't let this system beat it out of you but instead use what's around you what you see as a way to cultivate that even more and i think that's what i lost at one point and i've spent years and years trying to to regain Adam, if there's a physician out there right now listening to this who is struggling with addiction or depression, what would you say to that person? It's never too late for help. You know, no matter what you may perceive as a barrier or obstacle in the way, and we have work to do, but the best thing to do is to reach out your hand to somebody that you trust for, for help because the, the future is so much brighter and uh, the doors will just be swung open for you if you really find your own health and your own sanity and your own um, sobriety first. And that's what I have to keep doing on a daily basis is, you know, I have uh, my sobriety first and my mental health right alongside and, and then my family you know, my kids, my work falls in a, a fourth or fifth after that. And, and I love my job and I'm passionate about it. But I know that I'll lose everything else if I, if I don't keep my mental health and sobriety up at the top. It seems like a really hard time to keep it at the top, especially with COVID-19. Do you have any advice for frontline healthcare workers right now who are seeing a lot of trauma and struggling with feeling like the world doesn't have their back? Yeah, and I'll tell, I mean, I'm really honest that it's been really hard, you know, and it's been really hard for me too. And I have a three month old baby at home now. So we, you know, had a baby in the midst of all this uh, as well back in April, which was wild. So, you know, I, I try on a daily basis to acknowledge spaces for gratitude for what I have, that I have an incredible job. I have a healthy family. I have amazing friends and support system. I love the people I work with. This is really abnormal and really messed up and really scary. And it's okay to just like, you know, scream into a pillow sometimes because, you know, when my toddlers do it, I do it. <laughs> And, and so, I, you know, I've tried to just take a day at a time, as cliche as it sounds, but to balance the two where I can, at the end of the day, say, you know, I'm so blessed in my life. And at the same time, this is really scary and uncertain. And, you know, for us, I literally this morning as I came into work was reviewing our data from Indiana. And, you know, we're on the uptick again now for, for cases and admissions. And we went through that in May. And maybe here we go again. And so there's a palpable edge. And at the same time, try to do what we can do to control the things that are within our control. Adam, what's your advice for folks that are coming into medicine right now in the middle of a pandemic? They, they don't have too much to compare it against. And it probably feels quite topsy-turvy. Yeah, I mean, I've had the privilege just in the last few weeks of working with new interns or new fourth year medical students, uh, even third years new to the clinical rotations. And it, it feels, I'm sure for them, just surreal coming into this moment. Some people, they're graduating early, right, to, to join the COVID workforces in some states. And I can't possibly begin to imagine, you know, what that is or what that feels like. 
you know, for me, I'm trying to balance it as a leader in our institution who is tasked and charged with some policy and infrastructure work of saying, what can we do to support all of our staff uh, across the board and including the, you know, our, our new colleagues, but where else through all of this are there opportunities? You know, where, where are there opportunities to be better? and to change the future of medicine in a way because we've been presented with a unique challenge, but also a unique way to look at how we access healthcare, how we deliver healthcare, how we serve underserved communities, what, you know, really redefine what is diversity and inclusion in medicine. And, and so I think that out of this really difficult, challenging, stressful, fearful time is also just this really powerful opportunity to reclaim what we think medicine can be for the future. And that gives me a lot of hope. And that these younger generations of just coming into this, man, have so many ideas and creative, like just passion for change that fuels me and inspires me. And I think that that, you know, that keeps me going and I hope it also keeps them going that uh, their voice and their perspectives could really make a huge difference in the future. Well, I think that's a good note to end on. Adam, your story and the way you tell it is very inspiring to me for what it's worth. And I really appreciate you joining the show today. Thanks so much for being with us. Yeah, thank you so much and hope everyone stays safe and be well. I'm Rishi Desai. Thanks for checking out today's show. Remember to do your part to flatten the curve and raise the line. We're all in this together. For more information on how you can help raise the line and flatten the curve, go to osmosis.org slash COVID-19. If you like this podcast, please share it on your social channels. You can also subscribe to the series and check out all of our podcasts at osmosis.org slash raise the line podcast.